Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Crime and Science Radio. We are very excited to have a returning guest with us today. It is Todd Matthews of NamUs, and we are going to talk more about what NamUs does and new developments in the almost a year since we last spoke to him. So um, welcome, Todd. Oh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Todd's been with NamUs now, this must seem unbelievable to you, about five years, and he's the Director of Case Management and Communications for NamUs, but he has a very long history um, with working to find um, missing persons and to help identify unidentified remains, which some of you, if you're as old as I am, uh, think of as John and Jane Doe cases. Uh, you, you see those terms sometimes, I guess, now. Um, but he also um, has coordinated whole volunteer armies of people who who did that as well and works really hard to um, train others uh, who are doing this and to um, bring members of law enforcement and coroners and medical examiners, officers on board with with what NamUs does. So um, we are really looking forward to this. Thanks for joining us again. So oh, I, pre- I appreciate you having me. Okay. For those of us who haven't heard that um, first program, and it is, by the way, uh, available on crimeandscienceradio.com, or you can um, find it uh, through uh, Doug's website, dplylemd.com. Did I get it right that time, Doug? You, you got it. All right, finally, I'm trainable. <laughs> <laughs> you're not educable, but you're trainable. I... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but so if you haven't heard that first program, it's available. But for those who haven't heard it and are just listening today, give them a basic idea of what NamUs is and how it's different from, say, the National Center for Missing Children and NCIC. Okay, well, we're the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, which is NamUs uh, for short. And, you know, we're more than just a website. We're an organization of around 20 people. Um, and the most of our day is missing and unidentified persons. We do work directly with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. In fact, they actually use our database to track their missing persons cases today. They specialize in children, and we specialize mostly in adult or child cases that law enforcement chose not to involve the National Center. And that happens. So, so NamUs works with the families, and they also try to get coroners and medical examiners to submit information, law enforcement, other other entities. Um, but what happens to the unidentified who aren't within your database and with, under your umbrella? What can those people do 
to find out about a missing person? So to find out about a missing person, well, you know, families can actually enter their missing loved ones into the system. Of course, we will validate that with law enforcement. And sometimes it's the first time we've ever heard that a person's missing is when a family actually calls NamUs. Ideally, they would contact law enforcement first, but sometimes you don't know exactly where your person went missing. You know, if they were on a bus trip from New York to California and you don't know where they were last known alive, you really don't know who to report to. So we become the national entity that will help noodle that down to a, a spot and an agency that's willing to accept the case and be responsible for it. And then we can facilitate the collection of uh, the biometrics needed, the dental, the DNA, the fingerprints, uh, just anything we can to identify a human being should they end up among the unidentified deceased. Well, a lot has happened in the years since we last interviewed you, so let's talk about some cases. Um, You were in a film uh, by Reveal, and we'll put Mm -hmm. a link to that on our site for uh, listeners who want to watch it on YouTube. It's about a remarkable case. Um, You mentioned this case actually the last time we talked, but it was in a much different situation at that point. Um, And there have been some amazing developments. So talk to us about the Mountain Jane Doe of Harlan County, Kentucky. Well, you know, they call her Mountain Jane Doe or Harlan County Jane Doe. Uh, Her body was found after the tent girl was found actually in Kentucky. That was my first case in 68. Mountain Jane Doe was found on the trail in 1969. And I would never have heard of that case because I saw every case that was with the medical examiner system, and that case was not among those cases. There was actually a ghost story book. It was called The Harlan County Haunt. And it was, it was just a book about ghost stories that was processed on the local news, just lauded on the local news. The thing about it, it mentioned Tent Girl in the book. So they might as well have just shot a flare in the air. It caught my attention. They mentioned Tent Girl. I wanted to see what it was about. You know, that, that caught my eye really quickly. I thought they're talking about the Tent Girl, so I need to look at this. And it was a, a collection of ghost stories. Darla Sailor Jackson had written this book, and uh, she mentioned the second Jane Doe, which was the Harlan County Jane Doe, and it wasn't in, like I said, wasn't in the state's website. They didn't have it in their archives. And I contacted the state medical examiner and asked him, and she, she'd never heard of that case. And ultimately, the coroner, you know, I met with him at one point in time. I can't have went there probably six years ago. And talked to him about the case. They found a few records, and ultimately it did get in the Kentucky State website, and the NamUs website. So it ultimately finally got in both databases, which was really important because that, that changed everything for that case. Well, so you you knew about this case, and um, then there was, uh, and this is, is part of the film as well, you, you yourself were involved in going to sort of relocate, as it turned out, the remains, correct? Actually, what we thought was the grave of Harlan County Jane Doe turned out not to be after we exhumed the body. And it actually become clear during the process. You know, we didn't let on at the time. We weren't really sure, but there was evidence of embalming. You know, the, the, the some of the materials used, and there was no body bag in the in the casket, so there should have been some remnants of that. So it looked like a normal casket burial as opposed to the disposal of decomposed remains. 
So mm-hmm. we kind of knew that, and it's just one of the things that you just don't turn around and tell the camera right away. So you, we kind of had that idea. Um, so we realized that that grave had been mismarked for probably more than three decades, that people had been visiting that grave. So, um, And I tried to hint. You know, I couldn't tell the media, but I tried to hint in the film that sometimes those aluminum markers get misplaced. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to set the tone for them. There was nothing mysterious that happened here other than it was mismarked, you know. So it right. took them nearly a year before they heard that this is not the Jane Doe and we're going to exhume more. Mm-hmm. And they did ultimately find the right grave. Mm-hmm. But NamUs helped out with, with all of that. Correct? It brought I mean, the attention, uh, you know, the fa- mm-hmm. the family you know, noticed the case in in the database, and they had heard a story that was very similar to that. The daughter, you know, it turns out this is Sonia Adams is her name. You know, and hearing that name for the first time was uh, just something that just sticks with you. You know, they're able to tell you the, the name of that person. Uh, the family had some theories, and once they read it on the website and realized this is probably her, they had come forward and given their family reference samples of DNA so that it could be compared. And, you know, they had to wait for well over a year to finally get some resolution and, and some facts to support that this was their missing loved one. But that is pretty astounding that almost 50 years later, um, I mean, it, you know, as in, as we mentioned with Kinkton, it's a real needle in a haystack situation in, in some cases because, you know, for one thing, after 50 years, you may not have a family member who's still remembers that there was a sister that went missing or a a cousin that's you know nobody ever knew what happened to them you know it 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 became well even with the tent girl case it had been 30 years at the time and you know local officials mm-hmm. said there's probably nobody left alive that would remember this person it was just 30 years you know the tent girl's daughter is just a couple of years older than I am and uh, it's been it's been 1998. It's been 18 years since we've identified her, and I'm still alive and not yet 50. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it, it's very possible that people could live long enough of a lifetime and still miss that person and not have completely lost that person to just history. Yeah. And, and of course, with family lore, as it goes along, it gets handed down from generation to generation. It changes. It gets embellished. It gets misremembered. So... Yeah. Even if there was, well, well we had this cousin way back when name. that something happened to. The story yeah. gets changed so much you may not recognize it. You know, when they read that, you know, it all made sense to them. So when right. it was just it was just a fairy tale or an urban legend, a ghost story in a book, well, that, that wasn't really enough. But when they saw it on the federal website and started contacting officials, it really started coming together really right. quickly then. Well, and key to this, and I think this is this is part of, the whole when we just say a John or a Jane Doe, or we just say an unidentified person, I don't think it always hits people that if this is a a homicide or a possible homicide, um, you you can't go very far with a case usually if you don't have an an identification of the victim because you don't homicides are solved often by who was close to this person who is around this person um, because despite what you see on TV, it's usually somebody who is who is connected to you um, in most cases. So, so this is possibly going to make a difference in solving her homicide, correct? Well, you know, it's almost you can't have a whodunit until you know who is it. 
And that, that, that is, is literally true. There's been a few cases where people have solved a homicide and yet not know who that person was. We actually know of those cases where maybe a serial killer was identified as the killer, but there's still a Jane Doe or a John Doe case involved. But traditionally, you, you really have to have an ID before you can piece together who this person, you know, who, who actually committed this crime. And almost mm-hmm. all of them are homicides, you know. Uh, most all of our John and Jane Doe cases, you know, just a small few that are not, or we can't determine, you know, most of them have been an act of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it goes back to that how plus why equals who, you know, that the, the formula yes. that the cops use. And, and there's all, there's always a motive for someone killing someone else. It's not always recognizable or understandable, but there's always some motive. And uh, as Jan said, it's people, people know each other. And, and so if they can identify the body, then they can look around and say, well, who who could benefit from this death? You know, who would want this person dead? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that's where investigations start. That is the – and sometimes the family reference sample could do more than one job there. You sure. know, when you have a reference sample of – you know, you, and you, you kind of get it. If, if you have family members that don't want to give a family reference sample – you know something's mm. a little wrong there, possibly. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and it happens. It happens. Uh, sometimes families are worried that their DNA might be used for other purposes other than identifying human remains. But now, if you give a family reference sample of DNA, it is only used for the identification of an unidentified person. Now, the unidentified sample that comes in can be run in a criminal database because it could have been an escaped convict. It could be somebody associated with another crime. Because then you know for a fact. If you have a homicide victim, whether you know who it is or not, they're a victim of a crime. So they should be ran through a criminal database, but not necessarily for the family reference samples. So people should feel at ease that that is, you know, and then there's a lot of people who will never believe that, but that is, from what I've witnessed firsthand, that is the only thing that those family reference samples are used for. That's great info to have out there because I do think there are people who are um, – You know, and this is something, too, that we're learning more that quite often violence in families, you know, (laughs) is is generational even. Or so someone may Mm -hmm. feel, well, there there might be a warrant out for me or they're going to get a hit on my DNA for some other crime and I'll end up in jail. That isn't what happens here. That that sample is only used to identify the 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 victim in these cases. So. And it's free, and I think that's one of the hang-ups some of the times family have is it, what's what's it going to cost me, or they think we're going to spring a charge on them. And it's like currently it does not cost the families or law enforcement anything. It's paid through another grant separate from the NamUs grant, but also at the University of North Texas Health Science Center, our DNA program. And I urge people and families and, and agencies that have bones to submit, please do it now. That DNA might not always be free. You know, that we mm-hmm. don't have a guarantee. That's a year-to-year basis. You know, next year they could come and say, we're not funding that for whatever reason. You, you just never know. So don't wait. Don't wait. You need to do it as soon as you possibly can. I like to tell people, I always live like this is your last opportunity to do something. So don't put mm-hmm. it off. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Jacob Wettering case that kind of came to mm-hmm. a sad resolution this year. Can you uh, remind everybody of what course, that was about? Well, you know, we didn't have a lot to do with that. Of course, Jacob Weathering was in our database, and, you know, his family have become prominent in the world of missing an unidentified person. So you, it's hard to miss seeing some of their good work out there that they've tried to do to benefit the community. And ultimately, they did have somebody that uh, admitted where they buried him, 
and they were able to find the remains, and that did have an impact. You know, it had an impact on society. It had an impact on that family, definitely. You know, I often say missing is worse than dead, and I think the family had already come to their heart that he was dead. I think they knew that for a long time. But getting those remains back meant we can have a funeral. Uh, we can truly start the grieving process. And, you know, I say this all the time. Humans can handle death, not easily, but we're programmed for that because that's what we all have to do. It's that not knowing. It's that uh, not being able to know where that person is or how they suffered or what their fate was. That does not compute. And there's no way to make it right with somebody until they're able to put their loved one away. And it's even harder, you know. Uh, you're, you're not really programmed to, to have to bury your children, but it happens. It, it can happen very naturally. But, you know, somebody being taken and murdered and, and, and disposed of is just not something you have a natural ability to process. I don't care what anybody tells you. It's just not something that, that a human can process well and be okay. Did, did this lead to, to more information being shuttled your way? Actually, it did. Case, we right? actually, you know, with with the Wetterling case, you know, it gave people hope. Like, well, you know, it's been 30 years since my loved one's missing. Maybe this happened to them. Uh, we had people that would call and say, what else can I do to my case to make it better? And you find out, well, do you have dental records? Yeah, I, have, I actually have some that's not in there. So, you know, things like that happen. It caused people to bolster their cases, even law enforcement. You know, they would check in again because there was hope, you know, that these things are not hopeless, even if they're 10, 20 years old. You remember the, the ladies that were actually in Ohio that were actually found alive, and they, they were thought dead. We had the same effect with that, just a little bit differently, but it, it encouraged families. Kind hmm. of maybe a, a false sense that, uh, well, maybe my daughter's alive too, and she's been held captive, and now, now, there's, now there's some chance that she might escape, or, or even a son might escape and be okay. And I know giving people hope was really good, but in a lot of cases that's, that's probably not going to be the norm. And there probably are other people out there that are being held in a similar manner, but um, I don't. I don't think it's the majority. I think we yeah, all know it, that it's not going to be that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can sometimes almost be cruel um, to hope that you know you you understand people are going to, and you understand why, and you would do the same in their shoes. Yeah. But it's 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 what also keeps all those questions you mentioned earlier alive. Well. You know, is this person waiting somewhere for me to find them? You know, um, and and you know the associated guilt and things that you know can come from that. So it can yeah, it can damage a, a family greatly. Like, what did did I stop one door short of finding them? Did I give up one day too soon? Did I not mm-hmm. push that one phone call that could have changed everything? And that puts that in people's mind. And um, you know, I think we do what we can. I think families push as hard as they can, and I don't. I don't think they should ever feel like they've failed because they've yeah. had to simply go on living life. They have other children. They have other uh, commitments and family members. Uh, you know, if I'm gone, I certainly hope that my family will go on and, and live mm-hmm. their life as best they possibly can. I hope that for them. I wish that for them. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I've also heard you say, and I, I think it's so true, is this is why it's also on all the rest of us who don't have missing family yes. members is that these families are emotionally uh wrecked it's 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 that it's hard for them to you you see these extraordinary people who do go on and do more but but for a lot of the families uh it is so devastating 
they really can't be out there being the political advocate for change. They can't. And and it does. It takes all. It's all of us. We're all invested. You know, your tax dollars pay for these programs. So you, you have an investment in it. So just as we might help if there was an earthquake or a flood or a tornado, you know, we might go in and help the victims. It's no different. It's no different than helping the unidentified victims. It's no different than helping the families of the missing. It's no different. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've actually had people say it was a strange hobby before to try to identify the unidentified. Not at all. Not at all. Mm-mm. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to mm-hmm. care. And if it's too weird or strange for you, then maybe it's not for you. But somebody has to do that. Somebody has to do it. Well, it's it's also a public safety issue because if you've got someone who's murdered somebody and mm-hmm. and you're not identifying their victim, then, um, you know, that person is still out loose in your community. So it, exactly. And I've used that to turn, change people's mind before. You know, when you see people that are just like, yeah, but, this, you know, they're, they're listening to your lecture and, and you see them look like this doesn't really affect me, probably never will, and then you tell them. Now, if somebody got away with murder, could it be that one of your loved ones could call, fall prey next? Could it be you? And you see mm. people change a little bit. It's like, well, now that's a real possibility. That's a possibility. <laughs> it might be somebody you know and work with that's done this. Well, one of the, the cases I've wondered about since hearing about it in that way was a, an amazing case that we had um, with a possible connection to the Manson family here in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little about that one. Okay, and I cannot remember that girl's name. She was missing out of Canada. And, you know, the fact that it was a, a case that could have been a Manson case, the theory of it, you know, I think that helped a great deal with, with getting enough attention on it to to make that identification, you know. And, and families and friends actually saw that case, saw the reconstruction, and it, and it kind of put two and two together. Now, is that something that NamUs can normally process in our normal guidelines? No, you know, because we wouldn't have a missing person that was missing from Canada unless they were known like the Jesse Foster case. She was last known allowed to be in Nevada, but she was a Canadian national, but she was missing in the United States. So if we have somebody missing in New Brunswick, they wouldn't necessarily be in our database. So it's up to law enforcement and volunteers and, and the interested community to maybe help bridge those gaps that go across international boundaries. As I remember uh, the case, her she had a high school friend who wondered yes. what had happened to uh, her her friend and knew mm-hmm. they did know that she had gone to the U.S., that she had uh, traveled um, to California. And so because her friend, and this again, this friend is, is in Canada, Ontario, if I remember correctly, or I may have that, mm-hmm. that part right, it may have been British Columbia. But in any case, she she looked on NamUs from Canada, mm-hmm. um, and they, this this actually has sort of a worldwide connection because she, the family was had immigrated to Canada from Sweden. Um, uh, if I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting the, but the details I think you're right, right on but, that. right, and so um, there was just a kind of sense of well, she was this free spirit, and she took off and just you know I think again you know families sometimes don't want to know um, that something may have happened. It's almost easier to pretend someone just stopped communicating um, than to think that um, they may have met a violent death or whatever. So 
Um, yeah, so so if that friend in Canada hadn't known of NamUs, <laughs> this this would have you know possibly remained an, an unsolved case. Uh, There's a, a homicide detective here who's working really hard on it, um, and I guess that's something else is just that that you know you it just doesn't happen with just one agency or one person. It's a it's a collective activity of law enforcement and all kinds of people. So. Um, are there other cases you'd like to tell us about? Wow, there's so many. Uh, in the course of a day, we, we have so many cases that go across. There's, I can speak in generalities about a case. We had a case, uh, a person was missing out of Georgia and remains. It was, it was actually identified to a body in Tennessee, and, and it just really connected all the dots, and I don't think anybody would have ever dreamed that would have been the same person until DNA made the hit. So sometimes it's not the theory that you have. You know, you'll see law enforcement like, I never would have thought that. Or they'll see a facial reconstruction that never that didn't look like that person. Or they'll see jewelry and the family says, That's not mine, that's not her jewelry. You know, you'll get something like that and then DNA tells the truth often and sometimes it is it's surprising. I think families are really surprised at how far somebody got or the direction that they went would seem strange. Yeah. Well, you've been active in, in training not only the public but the law enforcement agencies on on NamUs, what it is, what it and does, how to, how to interface. It is, and that's part of our job. Is how's all that yeah, going, we, and, and and what can people do? What can the average citizen do to make sure their police department is aware of all this? I think they need to make their police department aware of it. We've done nearly 500, probably over 500 articles just this year. So for the past five years that NamUs has been at the university in our cases, we've had five years of solid growth with media. And it's not just because of something I've done. It's been the public have come back. The public have shown the media that they're sharing these articles, and then it's important to them. So when you see these articles in social media, share them, read them, pass them along to somebody because that's telling the media you're interested in it. So it's keeping these stories alive. Um, you know, reaching out to law enforcement and telling them about NamUs. My local agency currently, we don't have any missing persons in, in Livingston, Tennessee that are current cases. We don't have any. We don't have any John or Jane Doe's. So my department has no need for NamUs until they need NamUs. And then it's, then it's the learning curve. So, you know, but still to reach out and, and train them so that they're aware that there's a resource so they don't have to start looking. And it delays. It delays things when they're having to go about trying to find out what resources are, are available, what they have to pay for, what the government pays for for you. And uh, it's, that awareness is really good. It's going to cut down on the time. But since it's so episodic, like you said, you haven't had any in, in your jurisdiction, your area for a while, uh, I imagine that it's difficult people to keep that in the front of their mind and that's why I, I assume you have to keep going back and saying hey we're still here you do you do you have to keep reminding them hopefully they'll read it in the newspaper and share it but you know we're working on a rewrite of NamUs we're calling it NamUs 2.0 we're updating the software we're going to add features it's going to take months before we're done it's a huge undertaking but one of the facets that we're adding to it is a critical incident component and it's using the name as technology to not just work on cold cases, but to help in issue, you know, in the instance of a Hurricane Katrina or a 9/11 event or any other natural or man-made disaster where people are displaced, injured, unaccounted for. Uh, you know, we're hopeful that this will be something that people will want on their desktop for preparedness, because it's more likely in Livingston, Tennessee, where I'm at, that we're going to have a tornado. 
that's going to infect the entire community, then we're going to have a long-term missing person. You know, that could change tomorrow, but uh, I'm more afraid of weather conditions and, and landslides and earthquakes than I am about going missing here. So I think that's going to change a lot of agencies, especially the remote areas, that their biggest threat is the weather or or conditions where there might be some terrorist attack. Well, well since you're a nationwide program and, and, and you try to go reach into all the states and stuff, you know, obviously there's great variations in, uh, in, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction in how they do things. So how do you work around that? I mean, an example is recently in Ohio, they found out where dental records were not even being entered into a database. Uh, how do you deal with that? How would the public deal with that? Uh, how do you make all this work with the various moving parts? Well, there is an issue in Ohio, and it's and it's not only Ohio, but Ohio in particular, the Bureau of Criminal Investigations, will not upload dental radiographs, so that's actual x-rays of the teeth into the database. And their reason for doing so is we're a public database. So they're saying they can't, per a state statute that's long outdated from 1998, they're not allowed to put that biometric information into a public database because NamUs is considered a public database, but it has law enforcement secure areas. So I don't think that was totally a defined thing back in 1998. So it's being used now to say, but it's a public database. So what I think needs to happen, instead of using this statute as an excuse not to do something, take that statute and use it as an excuse to revise a statute, much like New York did, uh, to make it a requirement that we must use it. And the people of Ohio need to remember, you're paying for it whether they upload those records or not. So you're paying for a benefit that you're not getting. And people can tell you all along, the code are just as good as having the radiographs. It is not. You know, having those records proactively searchable by other law enforcement agencies across the nation, somebody's working your case from the other side. So that argument of it's just as good knowing they're available as having them uploaded just doesn't hold water. They really, really need to be in there. And to work around that, if we also get the records from law enforcement or for family members or directly from the dentist, we do upload them. I have just had to agree that I won't take a BCI record Bureau of Criminal Investigation and upload them into the system. So it doesn't break what they feel is their rule, and we're still benefiting best we can. It's a workaround. It's not good, but it's it's the best we can until somebody in Ohio says, I want a state statute to change that, because that truly wasn't the intention of that statute in 1998, was to prevent entry into NamUs. NamUs didn't exist then. Mm-hmm. By the way, um, the name of the woman that we were trying to remember earlier was Meet Jervidson. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why so I can't remember that name. It's not a common name. Have, no, it's an, an, uh, you know, but it's like I'm thinking we have to name her here because that's that's. That's what we're trying to do. <laughs> but, and I had um, to do a, an interview for Dateline in another, uh, I think, the fifth, uh, the fifth estate in, in Canada, you know, brief interviews with both. And I, I did have to have a cheat sheet with that name to make sure that I got it correct because that, that's yeah. just not like a Barbara Taylor, you know, for Tent Girl. It's yeah. a very unusual name for us. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, but with the Ohio situation, um that's important too is for any of our listeners here in law enforcement that you can you can um have information that law enforcement submits to you that is not 
in public view, correct? Absolutely. There are hidden areas in, in the system where you're not violating the person's, um, you know, public records. But, you know, even, even looking at dental records, have you ever heard of anybody stealing a dental record and, and forming a fake ID with a dental record? <laughs> <laughs> no. So it's hardly something that I think is a dangerous thing. You know, did we violate somebody's privacy by knowing that they had two fillings? Mm-hmm. Maybe. But uh, I, I think the need outweighs the, the concern there that if I'm missing, I don't care if you know how many fillings that I have. I want to go home, live or dead, yeah. you know. So I think it's just a mute point, and it's just a, it's just a point to argue if you don't want to do something. Yeah. Well, we recently worked together with the amazing and wonderful, I can't praise him enough, Assemblyman um, Steve Otis of the New York mm-hmm. State Legislature. And the reason I'm seeing his praises is um, near the end of the legislative uh, session this year when, um, you know, we were thinking, oh, this, this you know, doesn't have enough time to to get through, but he he had the help of uh, colleagues who saw how important mm-hmm. this was. So with their help, they passed a bill that requires coroners and medical examiners in New York to report all unidentified human remains to NamUs, and it passed both houses of the New York State Legislature without opposition. And thank you, Governor Cuomo, um, there also signed it into law. So what impact might a law like that have for the families of the missing? Well, it was phenomenal to see that. To me, I wasn't expecting that to happen, to see that come, you know, virtually out of the blue at me. But that's amazing. You know, I I just can't believe it went through so fast uh, when a federal statute, you know, Billy's Law, has, has taken, you know, it's been six years and it's not went anywhere other than, you know, going so far and then failing. And I think it's because New York was able to fine-tune it a little bit more to their system, and maybe Billy's Law is still uh, something that some states feel they need to tweak it a little bit. So you, you might see some states like Connecticut and New York that have maybe taken the initial concept and customized it to, to see, you know, like Kentucky has coroners, Tennessee doesn't. So you mm-hmm. can't hardly require a coroner to do anything when we don't have any. So mm-hmm. I think it's just fine-tuning that language. And law enforcement, you know, this is going to have a huge impact if we have to enter the missing. So I recently approached one of our state uh, representatives. He's a, over a region of Tennessee. He's often said he'd love to help me with something. He'd love to help with Billy's Law, but he didn't have that national reach. Now that I brought him the New York statute, he said, this is something we can do something with. So not only is he going to borrow your language and customize it for Tennessee, we're going to add missing persons, and we're going to try to work with law enforcement to find out what makes them comfortable, you know, what is doable. Like you don't want to require DNA samples to be collected before the end of the first day because most people are not missing. You know, a lot of people come home that are short-term missing, so you don't want to use all of that money for that. So we're going to have to work with law enforcement to find out at what point should we say is the is the deadline to get that missing person into NamUs? That's going to have a tremendous impact on the system. It's going to give us a lot of work. <laughs> it's going to give us mm-hmm. more work than we can handle. Uh, it, it might require us to look for ways to expand and add staff. Mm-hmm. And that's good because you can't put together a puzzle with one single missing piece. Well, I, I think this is this is a really good point, which is you want to get both sides of it. I know in California we have an excellent set of missing persons laws. Um, they, mm-hmm. they were some of the 
the I think it was one of the first states really to um, require uh, set requirements for NCIC um, reporting, um, and I believe they also report to NAMIS on on missing, but but the they don't have the other half of it here. <laughs> so this is my next challenge. No, it's, it's like we, we have different pieces, and I'm hoping maybe Tennessee will be one of the first states to say we're going to do both. Uh, you know, yeah. and maybe we would help set the tone for the next state to say, you know, with a little bit of tweaking, that'll work here too. Well, mm-hmm. and I'd hate, you know, I don't want to shelf Billy's Law. Billy's Law has been an important driving force for years. The, the pursuit of Billy's Law has kept people going, so it's not like do this instead of Billy's Law. It's almost like we had to break Billy's Law down into 50 pieces and customize it to make sure that we're all feeding into the same source. We're just using a different mechanism, a different timeline. You know, and NamUs doesn't want to replace NCIC. I think I've heard concern in the law enforcement community that, that NamUs wanted to replace NCIC for missing persons, and that's not at all because, uh, you know, I could go missing this morning, and probably it should be an NCIC by tonight, but I don't necessarily need to be searched for among the unidentified deceased in 50 states by the end of the day when it could be just a, an NCIC report that goes out to law enforcement on the roads. You know, so it's it's not a replacement. It's a it's a it's a, a tweak and an enhancement. Well, you know, these laws like Billy's Law often get names, but people often forget, you know, exactly who Billy was and how he became so mm-hmm. important. Can you kind of give us a thumbnail of a little more about Billy and how this law came about? Well, you know, Billy Smolensky of Connecticut, Waterford, Connecticut. He's been missing for well over a decade, and his family have also, like the Wetterling family, have also become very well-known through their pursuit of not only Billy, but to improve the laws. You know, missing adults, but in particular a missing male, doesn't seem to be taken as serious by law enforcement. You know, for whatever reason, maybe a male seems to be less likely to be a victim. Who knows? You know, but there's some, some something there that... Uh, it just makes it a little more difficult to get a police report, and they're wanting to change that, you know, to, to give an opportunity for a national database to help make that determination. And it has changed things. It's changed things a lot. So I wouldn't want them to see that if Billy's Law, by that name, never passed as a federal requirement, Billy's Law is still here. You know, the Help Find the Missing Act, I think it's what's inspired these local states to say, I can do that, and I'm going to do it this way, and we'll pass it here. They don't want to wait. You know, some of these states have waited six years, like, you know, well, it'll come out at the federal level and everything will be fine, but you're waiting this long, you're seeing people uh, that are affected by not having that. You know, it it causes us to have to look very hard to find cases sometimes, but if the state was required to bundle them up and hand them over, that's going to save us a lot of time in the search of these missing cases. You know, there's... We have this estimate there's 40,000 unidentified dead, you know, buried, cremated in evidence rooms, and, you know, we have probably, I think, 13,000, 14,000 unidentified into NamUs. And here we are in our fifth year at the University of North Texas, and, and the unidentified part of NamUs has been around since 2007. That's a long time. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's a long time, and we're still in pursuit of that 40,000. So maybe a law would shake some, literally shake some of the skeletons out of the closet. Mm. So what are the five most important things for people to understand about missing persons cases? Wow. So I think they have to realize that, you know, a proper report has to be made and that there's no 
certain time frame. I don't know of any agency that says you have to wait 24 hours and come back. I don't think that's ever really been a hard to find rule. You know, I, you know, like have you, you've not seen them in an hour. Maybe, uh, you know, if you don't see them today, come back and let us know. You know, I know you can cry wolf, uh, and you need to prepare. Uh, know where dental records are. Um, know if there's a next of kin to collect a family reference sample. You don't have to wait for it to happen. You know, I know where my dental records are. You know, plan for the best and plan for the worst and hope for the best in most of these cases. It's not going to hurt to put a record away. That's not saying my person's going to go missing. And uh, and no, know what the resources are. No, you can go to NamUs and enter your missing person into NamUs. That you don't have to wait for law enforcement to do it. You can contact our staff and know that the the resources are currently free, and you're not going to have to pay for anything. There's no bill. You've already paid for it. Okay. So some states have better legislation in place regarding missing persons. We we were talking a little bit about this. What are some states? that are doing well and and what makes that legislation effective i think uh well it's hard it's like apples to oranges i think it's you know states with higher populations that are more accustomed to a missing persons report because i think here in livingston tennessee we'd have to go back to okay (laughs) missing persons 101 because it doesn't happen every day new york city uh, phoenix arizona tampa florida you know it's every day it's not uncommon. They might have a missing persons unit dedicated to missing persons. Well, here we don't. It's going to be whoever it's assigned to. If such a thing happened, it's going to be assigned to somebody. There's not an entire unit just waiting for the calls to come in that day. You know, their main job here is is traffic, um, you know, occasional violence, you know, car accidents, you know, just, just nothing major. You know, we're, we're not having bombings, uh, any mass fatalities. It's It's all just normal small community things. So they would definitely have to think, okay, now what happens next? Well, what would you like to see next? What what would you like to see local jurisdictions? What kind of laws, what kind of prescriptions would you like to see put in place? Well, I would like to see, first of all, since I'm right here in Tennessee, um, I'm hoping my local representative will finish the wording up, tweak the New York wording for unidentified, and work with local officials to add a missing persons component and leave it flexible enough that we're not putting too much of a burden too soon on law enforcement. And that would be a model that I could take forward. I could take it across the the state line into Kentucky and say, can you use this? Can you pass it? You know, the representative even told me that uh, if I was up for it, he would let me introduce it to the House here in Tennessee. And you know, the General Assembly, and I I would love to do that. You know, if I'm not, uh, if it's not a conflict of interest for me, uh, I, I don't think it will be because I'll be creating more work for myself. But I think <laughs> it would be a good model, and I will certainly be passing that to every state that's struggling. I will certainly make sure that Ohio sees it. The citizens of Ohio, through media, you need to ask for this. And the funding for it is currently already in place. It's just requiring people to be aware of certain things and to follow a certain procedure. And that's that's really it. So I think that's what we gotta hope for. One state at a time until such time as, you know, Billy's law might be tweaked to the point that it'll pay. Well well Jan earlier asked about the important things to understand about missing persons. What about what important mm-hmm. things would you like to point out for people to understand about unidentified remains? Unidentified remains. I literally have seen unidentified remains sometimes go to learning facilities, universities, you know, when they're actually 
used by science for teaching or, you know, other studies, and that's fine. That's fine. But we have to make sure that samples are put into CODIS for the DNA. You know, I see some that's been six, seven years, and the sample's not there until you ask for it. So I shouldn't have to ask for it. You know, our staff shouldn't have to say, hey, you don't have any DNA on that person. Do you have a sample available? That's not the time to say, sure. You know, and it's not usually the, the job of the university to make sure this investigation is carried out. They're, they're curating remains. But if there was a state statute in place that required it, uh, it wouldn't be so easy for law enforcement to say, you know, I'm, this is a problem for me. I'm going to put it to the university and hope that good things happen. I think they're going to have to be a little more accountable for it. So there's, they're, they're going to be required, oh, I have to do this before I do that. Maybe a sample of DNA should be taken before the remains are put into the university's care. Seems like it's always somebody else's job. That's the whole mm-hmm. thing. And it's it's not because people don't want to do something. I think people assume, well, they're scientists, they'll do it. And then I have the scientists on this side, well, they're law enforcement, they probably already did it. So we have to ask, and that's what we mm-hmm. do. And we didn't know we had to ask until we had NamUs with missing blanks, spaces with no, nothing. You know, I'm saying no DNA here. That's when we start asking questions. Is that, well, sure, sure there's a sample available. I'll submit it, no problem. You said there's no resistance. It's just, should we really have to ask? <laughs> well, I would think you it know, was common sense, but uh, if, if, if people are assuming what, that other people have done it. I, I think this is uh, something, again, the average person can ask for, um, is you should go to your local county or whatever level uh, this is done in your state. For example, if you're in Oklahoma, you know, you have a state medical examiner system. If you're here mm-hmm. in California, you have – okay, so first thing is to find out how is death investigation organized in your area. And mm-hmm. if, if it's the state system, go to your state. If it's If it's done on a county system, go to the county. In Texas, you're going to go to the justice of the peace, and you're going to say, what? protocol is in place for unidentified remains um, because unidentified remains are expensive for a county. They are. Um, and so this is something we don't always think about, you know, that somebody has to, there has to be a disposition ultimately of those remains. Now, you know, some offices will keep them for quite a while, but in in these times, a great many of them, they're they're cremating the bodies and mixing the ashes and burying them in a common grave. And that's, that's happening here in Los Angeles County. But there's a protocol for taking DNA, for taking x-rays, you know, for, for certain steps along the way, at least um, photographing of the body or whatever. So, so you need to find out locally what, what are the protocols, right? (laughs) You do, and I, and it's not a weird question. You know, if you have a coroner system like in Kentucky, what's it going to hurt? To, you know, if you know the coroner, it's in a county, what's it going to hurt for somebody to say, do we have any unidentified that you know of? And are they in a national database? What's it going to hurt? Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, in Indiana this very weekend, uh, Scott McCord is the coroner there in, in a county of Indiana. He's actually going to bury. He's having a funeral for some of his unidentified remains. I think three of them. He's already collected dental records, DNA. We've done facial reconstructions. We've done just about everything we can do, and he's hoping that maybe just by literally putting them to rest, 
we can get mm-hmm. them back if it's time to give them back to face. He's not going to cremate them. He's just going to put their bones to rest. And mm-hmm. if they're never identified, we've done everything we can. And if somebody comes forward as a result of the the media exposure from this, you know, I think he'll be happy to, to, to hand that body over to that person so that the family can do it. But in the meantime, he's taken the stance of we're going to treat these people like family. We've done everything we can, and we're going to lay them to rest Mm-hmm. Much as you would do if if they were returned to you, and and they may never be identified. If not, they're they're going to rest in peace. Well, a, a friend of uh, a, actually one of my cousins and I we're we're going to work on starting an adopt the dead program. Tired of of asking people to ask their churches and synagogues and local places to adopt these bodies um, and and give them burials rather than cremation if there's a a chance that the family you know may want to come back or an investigator may want to come back and look at the actual body rather than cremains but you know to help Mm -hmm. you know if if you're going to care for people you know um it should be from cradle to grave (laughs) literally (laughs) uh it is it's such a natural thing you know even even death is part of life you know, and we—I mm-hmm. think we have to remember that it's something you can't accept. And the human nature is to put that person away and keep them in your mind and heart. And the families of the missing can't. So if we, if we can do it for them, you know, I, I literally adopted the tent girl. You know, before her family mm-hmm. was found, I, I felt that she was mine. Darla Sailor Jackson, she adopted Mountain Jane Doe. She feels like that's part of her family, and she's working with the family, the family that was identified, to help work out the funeral arrangements just mm-hmm. because she feels to – and they have accepted her as part of that. Like, you know, you you were there for her when we weren't, mm-hmm. and, you know, and that's mm-hmm. the way the Tent Girls family mostly accepted me. You know, I was part of the funeral at the end of the day. I did get to hear when they were making arrangements, and I was happy that they left her buried where she'd been buried for 30 years. They just reburied mm-hmm. her with a modified tombstone, and that was mm-hmm. that was great. It was very, very good to see that, and it made me feel good because she was right there where I always knew her to be. Right, right. Well, lately, I'm sometimes asked why NamUs cases of the unidentified aren't placed on, say, Ancestry.com or 23andMe, um, and I know there are some people that are doing something with um, – What's what's uh, sort of the emerging field, we'll say, of forensic genealogy? Um, what's the answer to those questions? Well, and I don't think it's something we would uh, practice, you know, through a normal process. Even facial reconstructions are not normally funded, uh, you know, as part of our normal grant because it's mm-hmm. not a, you know, what what they would call an exact science. It's it's not, you know. And I think the twenty three and me, I think a lot of that DNA is going to be hit and miss because you know my dna is not in there so if it was somebody related to me it might not hit now can it bring you know, down to a general location or a certain area and that's sort of like the uh the type of dna uh, where they're checking the stable isotope analysis you know where they're looking at that to see where you consume food and water what part of the nation i think a lot of these are emerging sciences i think they'll be more relevant in the future i think just with a little more trial and error and they even have the DNA that helps you see what that person might have looked like in life, what color their hair or eyes might have been. And it seems to be fairly yeah. accurate. I think that's going to come closer to the forefront in the coming years. When it's when it's perfected and it becomes less expensive, I, I think you're going to see a lot of changes. You know, we've got a bright future with missing and unidentified. It's uh, it's what what's behind us 
more scary than what's in front of us because I know we've got good <laughs> tools moving forward and there's more tools. It's it's like, what am I doing with the bodies that I can't find? You know, uh, that, that other 25,000. i got to mm-hmm. find those and hope to heck they've not been cremated or or disposed of in some way. We we have to keep going back to finding them. And I honestly I would have thought we would have I thought we would have been there by now. But we're not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not from lack of trying. It's not from a lack of asking. <laughs> well yeah. speaking of changes in the future, uh, since we last talked you've you've launched a new website. Can you tell us about that and how people can find you and uh let me see. Now you've you've we we actually have a University of North Texas Health Science Center website where we have our staff directory at untfsu.com. Okay. And you can actually go there to find our name of staff that actually work at the University of North Texas or in the field remotely. So it's going to give you their name, their contact information, the region that they serve, or, or what it is that they do specifically for NamUs. So that's that's something that we have available. Okay. And then didn't you do like a NamUs 2.0 or like that? Oh, yes. I talked about NamUs 2.0 earlier. So it's going to be the same website. You're still going to go to NamUs.gov. We're just going to have an enhanced database. It's going to work faster. It's going to work smarter. Uh, It's going to be more intuitive. And you're going to have one login. Instead of logging in to find the missing for the missing, identify us for the unidentified, and name us unclaimed for the unclaimed people, you're going to log into one database. And so it's a one-stop shop for real men. So we're going to consolidate all the fragmented databases. They're connected, but the entryway. We're going to give you one door into all the databases. Good. And I think that's going to that's going to help our staff so they're not having to maintain registrations and memberships to each various website and your permission levels. They're going to be set to who you are and what your job is. So the permission levels will be set for you. That's great. Well, Todd, it has been wonderful as always, and the time has flown by. Um, but I want to thank you again at not just for being with us, but just thank you for all you do because um, the missing and unidentified could not possibly have a more energetic, um, better advocate than you. So, so thanks for all you've done over the years um, for these cases. I know it started with Kent Girl and just um, a random kind of family interest in a case that that brought you into all this, but I I know there are many many families that are are grateful for your efforts. So so thank you for joining us and and thank you for all you do. Thank you very much. All right, thank you so much for having me. You make my job a lot easier by doing this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to remind everyone um, again that it's namus n a m u s dot gov. Um, that um, has the site. If you just Google N-A-M-U-S, you'll you'll see the site come up. Um, and you can learn so much just by visiting the site. We really urge you to do that, urge you to find out what's going on in your counties and communities with the missing. Um, talk to your uh, pastors and rabbis and, and anyone in um, your local groups that might care about um, burials of the unclaimed and unidentified to to help out with that. Um, those are all things any of us can do, and we hope you'll do them, and we hope that you will visit us at 
crimeandscienceradio.com and Doug's site at dplylemd.com. We have links to this show. We have links about this show and about the things we've mentioned. You'll be able to watch the film about Mountain Jane Doe um, by, by clicking on links we'll have there. And also um, all our past shows, including the, the show we mentioned that Todd did with us last year. So thank you again, Todd, and we hope we'll talk to you again one day. Okay, I'll count on it. Right. Thanks. <laughs>